Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast. So today we're bringing you something a little bit different. Our podcast today is a conversation with civic nationalism. And just before anyone gets themselves too worked up and starts tweeting, look, it's a pan-nationalist front, the Shared Ireland platform will be bringing you a conversation with civic unionism next week for balance. Because in any new shared Ireland, equality must be at its forefront. I'd like to start proceedings today by getting everyone involved to introduce themselves and their group uh, they represent, if applicable, and just to outline their views, their aims and their objectives. So, a warm shared Ireland welcome to Emma Rainey. How are you, Emma? I'm great, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'm Emery. I am a natively from West Belfast, but I've been living in Brussels for the last 10 years. And yeah, I work at the Brussels Binder, which is a, a database initiative aiming to promote women's voices. I'm also a board member at 5050 NI, but I'm very much here on my own personal back as an individual, as an Irish citizen. Yeah. Very good. Thanks for that, Emma. And welcome once again to the Shared Ireland podcast, Emma D'Souza. How are you? Hi, how are you keeping? Thanks for having me. Pleasure, Emma. I suppose uh, I'll get started by saying I'm probably best known for reaffirming the identity and citizenship provisions of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm now working for a major NGO. I'm also working as a writer for the Irish Times and, uh, of course, working in the space of getting full implementation of the Good Friday Agreement across all aspects of our society. I'm here for the pro-unity debate because, of course, I support constitutional change and I'm excited to be involved in the conversation. Excellent. Thanks for joining us once again. Niall Murphy from Ireland's Future. How are you, Niall? Uh, great, Niall. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's always a pr- pleasure and a privilege to join you. I'm here representing uh, Ireland's Future. We're a civic organisation which aspires to Irish reunification and aim to facilitate discussion on promote debate and stimulate research towards that end in line with the principles and processes set out in the Good Friday Agreement. Great. Um, we, we host webcasts ourselves, and when there's not a pandemic on, we convene uh, public meetings and uh, publish document documentation and, and research and just try to make the debate as informed and as accessible as possible. Okay, that's great, Niall. Thank you. Our next contributor is an old friend of Shared Ireland's. Welcome along, Professor Colin Harvey. How are you, Colin? Not, not too bad. Thank you very much, Niall. Um, I suppose my name's Colin Harvey. I'm an academic at Queen's, but I've also been involved in a number of the civic initiatives around this debate. Um, I'm on the Managed Board Ireland's Future and the Constitutional Conversations Group, and very much, you know, very de- delighted really to see the way that discussion has taken off but here this evening in, 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 in a personal capacity just to reflect on where the conversation is currently at. Okay, so Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you Colin, we'll talk to you a little bit later and it's a first time appearance for our next guest slash group. Welcome along Sean Nash representing Think32. How are you Sean? Uh, not so bad Neil, again uh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, you're saying my name is Sean Nash. I'm from Think32. 
Uh, we are an essential lobby group whose main aim is to encourage the conversation in Irish unity, uh, to seek the involvement of every section of society and to develop that conversation. Uh, we believe that the mistakes of the last hundred years have been have uh, should never be repeated. So the protection of rights for everybody, I mean, New Ireland is the most. Uh, and to do this, we must listen to every voice. Uh, uh, whether the conversation is taking place at the kitchen table in a pub or at a packed waterfront hall, it is important that we develop a conversation in unity and turn it into political action. Uh, the governments in Britain, the six counties and the 26 counties, have somewhat displayed a reluctance to allow the citizens of the asylum to assert their constitutional, constitutional right of self-determination. And I believe it's up to people like us to uh, try and push that along and encourage people to join the conversation. Okay, thanks for that, Sean. And last but by no means least, welcome back to the Shared Ireland podcast, Kieran Harhill. How are you, Kieran? Not too bad. So my name is Kieran Harhill, and I'm from Tipperary, and I'm 25, and I'm a PhD researcher. And my main contribution was putting together a document called Aspects to Consider in Preparing a White Paper on Irish Unity. So this was based on the Scotland's Future Report uh, for their referendum in 2014. And this was included as a written evidence submission to University College London's working paper on referendums on unity in Ireland. Thanks for that, Kieran. Okay, folks, so now that you've all introduced yourselves, um, I suppose we'll get into the reason why we're all here today. As you're all aware, the point of this particular conversation and podcast is to promote, outline, discuss, debate the benefits of a new shared Ireland that I suppose will ultimately enhance all citizens living on this island, regardless of their political aspirations or religious beliefs. So my first question, and I would like to um, direct this at you, Professor Collin, if you don't mind, explain why the union has not worked for all the people on this island. Thank you very much. Now, have we got all night here or the rest of the week? So I just try to be brief and I'm I'm conscious, you know, my friends and colleagues in this podcast and discussion, you know, have a lot more to say about all this. Just want to start by, you know, thinking about where we're all at this evening in, in this discussion and just to reiterate how heartening it is to see how much further this debate is on. You know, it, it really is now a sort of, it can't keep up really as a starting point. So just want to frame it in that way. You know, it's great to see the work that, that's been done. I think we all know, everybody listening to this discussion, all the available evidence that I've seen indicates that partition has been very, very bad news indeed for the North. That includes economically, but not just economically. Uh, the division on this island has been bad news uh, for everyone on this island, but particularly disastrous, really, I think, for the North. So I think the UK model, the union model, hasn't worked, hasn't delivered for people here. We could spend the rest of this evening with a history lecture around that, but the reality is that's where I think we're at. It doesn't work, hasn't delivered. We need change. I think we have to acknowledge in that and we have to be generous to, to unionism in this in the following way. Many people's preferences here are not tied to economics. So you can you, you can make the case about economics all day and all night, and it won't change somebody's fundamental belief about their identity or about where they want to. And I think we have to respect that. You know, that that 
many unionists here will be unionists even if it means being worse off in the union and will make the case for the union going forward. So I have to acknowledge that. And that's the same the other way around. You know, there were people, when people were uh, making the case, were building a movement for, you know, a, a free Ireland, if you like. I'm sure there were many people then, and there were many people then saying, you know, this will be economically disastrous, you know, you're, but, but they went ahead anyway. And I think we have to acknowledge that about particularly unionism as well and respect unionism's desire to make the case for the union. I think Brexit is helping making the case, not just Brexit itself, you know, being taken out of the EU against our will and all that, but the management of it, the way Boris and the Brexiteers have treated people in the north, on this island, treated people in Britain, England, Wales and Scotland with complete contempt, but particularly on this island, it's just exacerbated the problem. So there's the impact of removal without consent and there's an aggravation that's being caused by the outworkings of it, are just for many people reaffirming the desire for change, the feeling that we don't want to be part of this anymore if we ever did, and something needs to change. So in New Ireland, ultimately now, just to finish up, increasingly for many people, feels like the more appealing option it feels like the better bet, wherever you're coming from ideologically, whatever label you may attach to yourself, wherever you started off uh, politically, I think many more people are open to that conclusion, open to that argument and open to being persuaded. But also I think for a number of people in the North who are at this point in life, like you introduced the podcast with, a label that many people in this conversation will themselves be uncomfortable with, right? So there are people involved in advocating for United Ireland who don't like the term nationalist. I don't like the term nationalist. I don't see myself in any way as a narrow nationalist. You know, I see myself as a sort of pluralist human rights advocate who believes in social justice, who wants a United Ireland. So many people are involved in the conversation about constitutional change because they want a genuinely pluralist future. They're actually fed up with the old labels. They, they don't want them anymore. They want a new Ireland where we can shake off our past and, gen and build a genuinely new future. So when people use the term New Ireland, I very much hope they're not using it as sort of, you know, a cliche or a soundbite. Because when I use the term New Ireland, I mean a New Ireland. It has to be genuinely new. So many of the old economic, social, cultural, political arguments about the union, many of the old arguments about partition have just simply fallen away. Many of the arguments in relation to the South are gone. So I think, to me, you know, it's a logical conclusion where we're at, and it's, and it's just heartening and great to see more and more people joining what is a growing conversation across this island and these islands actually for genuine and real change. So thank you very much, Dan. Thanks for that, Professor Connell. I think you made some excellent points there, but just picking up on one, I suppose the thing that motivated the Shared Ireland platform to have this conversation with um, you know, a, a panel of people that are pro-unity and next week we're going to be doing the same conversation with a panel of people that are pro the union and I suppose for me 
you know, a new Ireland will mean many different things to many different people, potentially. And I think that's the interesting thing about having you five or six here this evening to hear, you know, just different opinions. Um, I'll throw this conversation open to anyone that would like to maybe come back or say something or add something to whatever Professor Kong has only after said there. Anyone? Sean Nash, think 32. Go ahead. Uh, you know, Kong's right in everything he said. Um, but the thing that sort of really that is holding us back is that political unionism just doesn't seem to want to try and sell a union. You know, uh, that's the impression that we get anyway. You know, that, uh, you know, you, you don't have conferences like you had the Waterfront Hall. Uh, you know, they just don't want to, they just, I don't think they feel they have to sell the union, that we should just accept it, which sort of, it makes it a wee bit tougher for, for, for ourselves. Okay, um, thanks for that, Sean. Emma Rennie, you um, would like to add something? Yes, thank you. Um, just building on both of those points there. Um, watching that RTE debate a couple of weeks ago on, you know, the topic, I feel like the, the conversation is currently being framed as a very northern aspiration rather than an all-island aspiration. And as we've seen consecutively in many opinion polls in the there's strong republic there's strong um there's strong favoritism for a United Ireland in the polls that we've seen. I've also found it quite frustrating as well about the, the centralizing of the of the debate on unionism and identity. If I was a unionist, I would actually feel really insulted by this because I feel like it, infant, it infantili infantilizes them. You know, what they're doing is a very active choice. They're making that decision to put their hand, their head in the sand or to, you know, issue field uh, threats of violence, whatnot. But that's that's their, well, that's their tactics. So we wouldn't call it a strategy. But yeah, I feel like the debate now needs just to move forward from there. We can leave the door open always leave it open for them when they feel ready to engage but we can't wait around basically okay thanks for that folks so we'll move along to our second question and this question is for emma d'souza emma why are the principles of the good friday agreement so important and what steps are required to ensure all aspects of the agreement are implemented fully well, I'm going to be really sneaky here and actually quickly pass comment on the remarks made by Colin first and then get to my favorite subject, which is the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, certainly. I just wanted to um, add my voice also to what Colin was saying in terms of labels. For anyone that follows my contributions, you'll know that I take a particular point of issue with the perception of the people of Northern Ireland as solely unionists and nationalists, because I believe but these labels are really used against us. They're used in a way to segregate and create division in Northern Ireland, and they don't represent the diversity in the North that there is today. And also to you know, add my voice to the, the idea that we are shifting from what once was maybe only an idea in, in a small minority of nationalists view, this romantic dream of a new Ireland or a united Ireland at some point it has shifted drastically now the conversation has become quite mainstreamed. It's now more of a conversation about well, what will that look like? How will that benefit my children? Will it be economically beneficial for me to be part of a new Ireland? So it's moved away from what was once perhaps a romantic dream of a united Ireland to a much more practical conversation. I suppose now to get into the meat of what you asked me around the Good Friday Agreement. Well, I think it's really important to first of all 
recognize the mandate that was handed down by the people of this island in 1998, an overwhelming majority that voted for the Good Friday Agreement and the aspirations and commitments on those pages. You know, we're here, here we are 23 years on, and many of the rights-based provisions of the Good Friday Agreement had not been implemented or have been poorly implemented. And the Good Friday Agreement really provides us with a framework, a rights-based framework for the now, but also for the future. It also provides us with a roadmap in terms of looking at how to prepare for constitutional change, because we know how much work went into the Good Friday Agreement and how much work went into preparing those pages, which was then sent out to each household on the island of Ireland so that people could make a truly informed choice. And I think whenever we're looking at constitutional change, that's really important too. People have to be informed. They have to understand the nitty gritty of what it might mean. And to get into, you know, what steps are required uh, to see the Good Friday Agreement fully implemented, we would be here all night because there's a list the length of my arm of rights-based provisions of the Good Friday Agreement that have mm -hmm. never been implemented or put into practice. And we are very far off having the principles of parity of esteem, mutual respect and equality embedded into this society. We know that we don't have a Bill of Rights to embed these principles. We don't have citizenship legislation to truly recognize the fact that we are to be accepted as Irish or British or both. And we see a sort of deliberate manipulation of the consent mechanism within the Good Friday Agreement or an attempt to shift the goalposts as to what the right to self-determination really means. So I think it's important that we look to the pages of the Good Friday Agreement in terms of figuring out a way forward I actually was involved recently in a project on explaining the Good Friday Agreement. We have a website called gfaexplained.com. Mm -hmm. And what that has is a the full text of the Good Friday Agreement in an interactive website with the explainer videos. So you can go and, and read the text. And what I would really like is for everyone to take a look at those words and remember how important they are. Thank you very much, Emma. And we'll come back to you in a little bit. So my third yeah. question today is why is it imperative that a citizens assembly be established to facilitate a conversation around our future and i suppose an onus on both governments as co-guarantors of the good friday agreement and if i could ask you that question please niall murphy of ireland's future and sorry folks i forgot we'll chat about emma's question after niall finishes Yes, uh, now, exceptional question, as always, and Ireland's Future have suggested the convention of the Civic Assembly as a means to gather information and data to inform potential models in a reunification scenario. And really, our, our analysis evolved uh, over the last couple of years. In our first origin, we uh, were concerned with the emerging rates vacuum uh which was plaguing uh our society when, when one considered where we were in terms of the provision of rates in these islands um the brexit crisis was a, an evolving uh slow moving car crash uh that we made public intervention on and by the by the outworking of brexit our analysis had evolved to the extent that uh there needed to be a new consideration and a new outlook on the constitutional future of the island and in doing so we sent public correspondence in november 2019 
um, just before two general elections on a on the pandemic, how, how quickly things move. Um, but that correspondence was a public letter signed by uh, 1,100 citizens, two thirds of whom lived in uh, the south, um, signed by hundreds of business people, uh, the employers of tens of thousands of people, leaders of our community sector, our arts, sports people, uh, community activists. Um, and the, the, the appeal to the Taoiseach was to engage uh, the mechanisms of state uh, to um, listen to the people. And when we reflected upon the successful constitutional amendments that had been made in the years previous, most notably um, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment to the Bunrock Naharan and also uh, the constitutional uh, right uh, for, for marriage equality, uh, we, we threaded the, the piece back and it was apparent that the model of a citizens' assembly had been crucial to that. Uh, there are there are two um, mechanisms in the Republic of Ireland whereby constitutional change can happen, uh, both of which has occurred in the most recent decade. The other is by way of constitutional convention, which was held from 2012 to 2014, and that recommended the extension of the presidential voting franchise, um, which has yet to be put to the electorate for approval. And then, of course, the Citizens' Assembly in 2016, uh, which dealt with uh, marriage equality and the repeal of the Eighth. So those were, were, were mechanisms that, that we considered should be reflected upon with the full authority and resource of state. Uh, Citizens' Assembly must be resourced by the Department of Finance. And our appeal was unique, perhaps, insofar as we... Uh, respectfully suggested that such a citizens' assembly must take place on an all-island basis because uh, any new constitutional envision of a new Ireland must accommodate everybody who's living here. Uh, and that includes unionists and people of a British identity in the North because it's their home too. Uh, they will be living here forever, hopefully. Um, they're my neighbours, they're my work colleagues, uh, and they need to have a say in the future of this island. We can't uh, impose anything uh, on anybody, and this has to be a constitutional arrangement which works for everybody. And they, I, I wouldn't be so um, presumptuous to speak on their behalf. Unionism and those of a British identity are articulate, have some exceptional advocates uh, who, who will represent their position uh, better than anybody else. And to that extent, um, the, the, the Citizens' Assembly, which, which we envisage, must account for all views. Um, so th those, those, those are the reasons now uh, which we consider a Citizens' Assembly is appropriate. The people are usually ahead of politics. Politics responds as an and is informed by uh, civic society opinions, um, we consider that uh, what we're reflecting is what we hear at the side of a football pitch in coffee shops, uh, dropping kids off at school. This, this, this is the debate on the, on the lips of the people. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Niall.
Um, I think what we'll do, we'll change the format up ever so slightly. I'm just going to continue with our next contributors here and then give everybody a chance to speak and then we'll come back and we'll discuss uh, the finer points of what everyone said, if that's okay. So our fourth question today is for Kieran Harhill. Kieran, what needs to happen to ensure the citizens in the South Republic of Ireland will vote yes when we do get an opportunity to vote on the constitutional question? Yeah, so it was, it was great that uh, Emma really mentioned there that there has to be both a focus on the North and the South as well. And I suppose because we're uh, involved in this conversation, we're very much uh, on the pro-unity side, so we know how we'll vote. But I think like anything, especially when it comes to social media, it's good to get out of the echo chamber. So before coming on to this podcast, I spoke to my girlfriend and to my friends from college who wouldn't be as invested in the conversation to see what they think about the question of Irish unity. And I suppose the big takeaway from all of that is that there is no 100% absolute certainty that everyone will vote for unity in the South. So I think there were three big factors which came into it. So the first one is the financial side of things. So what is the cost going to be on people in the South? Is it going to lead to increases in taxation? So that financial element is a massive factor. Then one of the second factors is that people you know they'd love to see in all Ireland all 32 counties together but there isn't trust in government in the south that I suppose from a young person's perspective one of the big factors is housing and unfortunately in places like Dublin housing has been a massive issue so if it's a case that social conditions on a lot of things for people in the south uh, aren't doing well at the minute there is a fear of well how will adding another 1 million people 1.8 million whatever the population of the north is will that be more challenging and will we be able to meet any societal factors and then the final aspect which from a southern perspective but thinking about the north was people in the north have the nhs so they're not going to vote away that because it's it's free the point of entry so they're not going to move away from that so going back to the original question what can be done to make sure people in the south will vote for unity the most important thing is absolute clarity and certainty so Picking up on what Niall said earlier, it's a citizens' assembly is absolutely crucial, and it's great to see. Uh, I looked before this at the general election manifesto from last year, and it was only Sinn Féin who mentioned the citizens' assembly. But now you've got people like Neil Richmond and Jim O'Callaghan speaking about the need for a citizens' assembly, so that's excellent to see. But one thing which I think is important is I think an issue could be if you have the Citizens' Assembly, which I think will be excellent for something like developing a new constitution to make sure that protections are there for people of a unionist and British background. But if it's a case that you've got the Citizens' Assembly, then you've got the border poll, and then the negotiations take place. I think that could be an issue because uh, a really good example was the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, where one of the big issues was what currency would an independent Scotland have. And the argument for the independence side was that Scotland, if it voted yes for independence, that would be a mandate for the British government to allow Scotland to use the pound sterling. Whereas the argument on the no side was, no, pretty much, you're not going to have this. And that led to the argument then of um, that Scotland would have less independence if it was uh, independent because of the currency. So I think overall, what is needed is absolute certainty. And I think 
negotiations so that there is certainty as to what the financial implications will be in terms of would the British government continue to contribute in some way to the finance, what would uh, aspects to do with legacy, how would that uh, be solved or what the process for that would be. So I think certainty is one thing that's very crucial. And then whatever point which I think um, is really important is that basic living conditions need to improve in the south so problems surrounding housing has to be solved and actually just going back to a previous podcast with Sherrod Aaron which was excellent which was with Claire Hanna back in 2019 she mentioned how if there was a border pool say in the current stages while Brexit scenario is still trying to be uh, planned out that would be a problem because the civil service in the south was so focused on Brexit and coming up with solutions for Irish problems to that, that it'd be more of a challenge bringing the unity on top of that. So I think for me, once uh, COVID and everything with that is sorted, I think the number one uh, factor or the number one policy aspect that the Irish government have to focus on is on ending the public-private divide in healthcare and in generating a universal healthcare system free the point of entry so people in the north who were conscious of the nhs and believed that if they were to vote for unity that that would have a massively negative impact on their healthcare by having a similar system in the south so people in the north have certainty with regards to their healthcare and then other aspects just in general in terms of housing if you look at teachers for example uh, equal pay for all teachers the basic societal aspects of everyday life so just ensuring that living conditions for people in the south are enhanced and that unity doesn't result in a massive cost and actually just one final point is there was an excellent uh, article by steve bradley for slugger o'toole who mentioned uh, 10 reasons why irish unity would be good for the republic of ireland i'd really recommend every person who's interested particularly from a southern perspective on what unity could provide i think that's an excellent uh, article on what the benefits can be and there has to be an onus on government in the south to plan for unity and to try and enact those positive changes excellent kieran very comprehensive um Yep, we'll get back to you in a little bit. Our fifth question today is for Emma Rainey. Emma, my question to you is this. The EU has already guaranteed Ireland automatic re-entry in the event of unity. Tell me, why is this important, Emma? Well, Emma Kenny uh, secured this provision in the European Council back in 2017. Puts Ireland in a very privileged position of not having to negotiate for EU membership compared to our, our uh, neighbours in Scotland in the case of independence. This is because, you know, existing EU members are free to define their own borders and in accordance to international law, of course. Um, this means that the EU is constantly evolving. You, you need to only look at the case of German unification as well as the ambition to see Cyprus reunited again. It's also important to remember the GFA in this context too. The EU endorses the Good Friday Agreement and it even made its protection central, a central aspect of the Brexit negotiations. This is because, you know, democracy and human rights are central values of the EU, which includes the right to self-determination. Constitutional change on our island will evidently impact the EU and Ireland's position in it, such as the representation in the European Parliament, or there will be questions about our well, well, the economic and monetary sort of rules change for Ireland, as well as, you know, safeguarding some legal protections for, um, for residency rights for our British citizens in Ireland. When the referendums for Irish unity happen, the EU should have an absolutely proactive role in, facilit in sort of like a facilitating sort of a, 
role, I would say, you know, especially in the transition period, if, um, if where, where, the, where the UK is handing over sort of uh, the, gov- the, the governance and the school sort of um, the powers to the Republic in regards to um, the North, more likely um, groups and committees will spring up in the institutions to help manage the process. And, uh, you know, recent opinion polls across the island show support for EU membership is very strong. Touching a little bit on what Colin Hardy uh, mentioned earlier, like um, so many are changing their constitutional sort of opinion to a united Ireland now. And because they they want to reverse the effects of Brexit to once again enjoy the full, the full benefits of EU membership. When German unification happened, you know, the EU actually invested 18 billion euro through structural funding. Despite Brexit, the EU is still continuing to provide funding opportunities for Northern Ireland um, and the border counties through the now named Peace Plus programme. This is going to be amounting to about a billion euro and it will run from 2021 to 2027. For me, this shows that the um, that they're invested in the social cohesion and continuing uh, the piecework done in the region. And in the case of Irish Unity, it's very, very likely that the EU will continue to set up like a, a, a bespoke sort of funding um, program to help with the stabilising the process of the island integrating. Again, my own personal take again is that the EU is already anticipating Irish Unity. You need to only look at the temporary nature of the Northern Ireland Protocol to see that it wasn't designed to be a long-term solution for uh, to Brexit. If you couple, you know, the uh, if you couple the unilateral exit mechanism with the sort of political chaos that's going on in Stormont, I would, I, I would, I would really, I would really. Uh, I would bet that many are feeling quite anxious inside the institutions, and uh, there'll be that that anxiety will probably increase come 2024. You know, it's also important to remember that many major figureheads across Europe are actually in favour of Irish unity. You might remember that um, Emmanuel Macron back in 2019 said that Irish unity would solve the problems of Brexit, but it isn't up to France. He's right and wrong in a number of ways. He's right in the sense that, you know, Ireland existing as one unified state is the most logical sort of thing. But however, the UK's withdrawal from the EU was already underway and planning for a border poll and the outcome of Irish unity needs to take time and we just weren't there yet. However, Brexit is over. Trade day is, was official as of yesterday. Um, we're now just waiting on the protocol to be fully implemented. So. I personally, I don't see anything that is stopping the Irish government from actually starting the process of planning unity. It's very much in Dublin's court right now, but I will also wager that the EU will be whispering in Dublin's ear to, to try and move things along. Some excellent points there, Emma Rooney, and um, we'll come back to that just after we finished with this last question. And it goes to Sean Nash um, of Think32. Sean, what role does civic society have to play in this conversation and why is civic society's voice so important? Uh, civic society has, up to this point, played a, a major role in, in, uh, in the development of the conversation of Irish unity. Uh, you know, if, if, if uh, people feel that this is something that's going to benefit them or, you know, or, or you know, if Irish unity is going to be better for them, then it's up to civic society to uh, 
to get all the information out there who encourage conversations. Uh, you know, it's this is everyone's conversation. It's not just one community's conversation, and it's about encouraging people to to, to become involved. Like our one of our hashtags is uh, join the conversation, and we believe that everybody should take part, uh, take take and have their say. Um, it's absolutely vital that civic society encourages involvement in the conversations in Irish Unity. Uh, like if you look at the, the recent poll, even the BBC Spotlight, there's a talk poll. It showed that 43% of the people in Northern Ireland in the six counties would vote for Irish Unity. Now, that's even before any kind of information, any kind of plan is, is, is put out there. Like, you know, so it's up to civic society, the uh, lobby MPs, the, you know, to engage with government departments like Shared Ireland did with the, you know, the, the Shared Island Department, uh, creating reports uh, and launching reports like Colin Harvey, Shared Ireland, uh, you know, the, the reports that they have, they get the information out there, uh, they highlight the problems around petitioning, they develop strategies. You know, it's uh, it's about writing the government, uh, the politicians to encourage proper planning, just like uh, uh, what it calls to there, Kira. Uh, sorry, says uh, it's about, you know, the government's uh, pushing the government along to, uh, the, to try and implement some kind of plan which will give further people further information on, on what Irish unity would mean and will give them more information rather than have a, a Brexit style uh, uh, border pool with, with no information out there and you know look at the mess that, that that's that that has left everybody here at the moment. Uh, the groups like Ireland Ireland's future uh, are still 32 share Ireland like you know we just need to continue what we're doing. Uh, I think that we've come a long way uh, from from the beginning, you know. And but I don't think we should we should get complacent in any way, despite all what's going on around us. I think we should just continue what we're doing, and and uh, I think things will will turn out right at the end. Okay, thanks for that, Sean. Thanks, thirty two. Colin Harvey, if you wouldn't mind, I'll just come back to um, what Emma D'Souza spoke about. Why are the principles of the Good Friday Agreement so important and what steps are required to ensure that all aspects of that agreement are implemented? Uh, would you like to expand on that, uh, Professor Colin? Okay. Um, now, I think that, in a sense, the Good Friday Agreement is going to shape the debate, firstly, because the it's a core element of the agreement. You know, some of the procedural steps that that will guide this process are in the agreement, right? So I think one of the most difficult discussions in the last number of years has been just making sure people don't undermine what's there now. Um, in, in some senses, the text of the agreement is, is quite clear to my mind. And we, we've set out a what we think is a good faith interpretation of those provisions around concurrent referendums, you know, 50 plus one, north and south. But I think what's been concerning is watching people, Emma will, will do this very well from Emma's work, is the chip away, you know, even the textual basis of the agreement itself. So I think, first of all, we have to defend the Good Friday Agreement provisions around this and remind people that the self-determination provisions, the principal consent provisions, they're actually there to start with and they need to be protected. 
I'm getting quite alarmed, I have to say, by the people who are emerging into the public sphere, just gently putting out there, you know, oh, people didn't really think it through. Oh, people just voted for peace in 98. They didn't really read. I think, well, I'm sorry to tell you, some people did actually read the agreement, you know, and voted on the thing. You know, would like to see it upheld. It's an important constitutional compromise. So we need to see that implemented. The second thing is, look, the values of the agreement that have been talked about here, um, you know, and Niall Murphy mentioned, Emma has mentioned, others have mentioned around parity of esteem, mutual respect and equal treatment are there already. It's not a blank page conversation. You know, in a sense, we've made a promise about the future as well. And, uh, you know, as Niall Murphy has said, we, we've made a promise to, to British citizens here, if you like, that, 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 that we will protect you going forward, that these guarantees aren't just political commitments, they're underpinned by international law. And so the Irish state... A reunified Ireland is going to have to step up. So this will be a challenge to the Irish state in a reunification process to reflect the commitments in the Good Friday Agreement around rigorous impartiality, around the equality and rights provisions there, and around mutual respect and parity of esteem and equal treatment for you know citizenship and identity uh, here as well going forward. And I think that would be challenging. So the final point is you know, why wait? You know, one thing that could be done now is that the Irish state, the Irish government, could begin to reflect in the here and now how it might get reunification ready. Um, I'm going to avoid a cliche match fit or something like that, but you know what I mean, you know. Irish state, the Irish government should start getting ready. And for people in this conversation and people listening to this podcast, there's going to be real stretch points in this, right? It's going to be challenging for people on the pro-United Ireland side who maybe going to have to go places that are going to be deeply uncomfortable but are going to be absolutely essential, not just for achieving our shared constitutional objective, but most importantly to me, to make sure that a new Ireland is successful. We don't just want a united Ireland. We want a successful New and United Ireland, and the Good Friday Agreement is absolutely at the core of that, I think. Great, Colin. Just before we move on to a different subject, has would anybody like to contribute anything to about the Good Friday Agreement, what Emma D'Souza and Professor Colin said? No, no problem at all. Emma D'Souza, I'm going to just ask you to briefly touch upon Niall Murphy's question. And uh, just a reminder is why is it imperative that a citizens' assembly be established to facilitate a conversation? Um, have you anything to add to that, Emma? Absolutely. I mean, citizen, the citizens' assembly recommendations at the weekend were just so groundbreaking and exciting, and you could feel the energy and the momentum behind them. And it was it was a, a beautiful moment really to witness um, and I work within women's rights in Ireland so it was really great for our organization we were delighted and as a northerner I felt at the same time a bittersweet feeling because we don't have that kind of engagement we don't have that sort of structure and why don't we you know like the Good Friday Agreement includes uh, included the civic forum and a structure for there to be a bridge between citizens and political representatives. Don't, don't mention the and bridge was, please Emma. <laughs> um, and it was, <laughs> sorry, and it was um, 
you know, it lasted two years. It was never given a chance to even, you know, to, to even try. People just let it, let it fade away into nothing, like so many other provisions of the Good Friday Agreement or commitments within those pages. It was just let go of and left to fade and we don't have anything in its place. And so I think it is really important that we do set up an all-island citizens assembly to start having meaningful conversations of what the future looks like. Mm -hmm. To take that back to what Kieran was saying, you know, we can't rely on this idea that those in the South are just automatically going to vote yes in a border poll because people historically and rightfully so may not vote for what they don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, if they don't know what it's going to look like, then that's going to make it much harder to vote based on hope or faith, Emma, especially with the Emma, politics can I, just, that can I just ask you a question there that people in the South or even anywhere potentially won't know what to vote on? We recently had um, Fianna Fáil TD on Jim O'Callaghan and Jim made that point himself that, you know, who is the onus on here? Is it on people like us that's in this podcast or should the real onus be on the British and Irish governments as co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, to set the tone here, to put the mechanisms in place for people like ourselves, for political parties, whatever, to have this conversation. You know, what, what's your take on that? Should, should we, as, I guess, unelected representatives, should we take more of initiative here? Or what, what, what do you think? I think there is a responsibility on both governments in terms of rigorous impartiality, but also in terms of... Um, you know, recognizing the divergent political aspirations that exist on this island and the constitutional aspirations. You know, the, the constitutional aspiration within the Irish constitution is to reunify this island. So, of course, it's perfectly legitimate for the Irish government to be trying to lay out a plan for how it might achieve that aspiration. But at the same time, I think that civic society has a really important role here. Um, even with the Good Friday Agreement, civic society and the Women's Coalition, which then founded and became a political party, played a massive role in terms of bringing forward, you know, provisions based around social cohesion, around embedding re reconciliation into this society. So I think that the role of civic society can't be underestimated because it will bring pertinent issues to the table that political representatives might not be able to see for themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a responsibility on all sides here. Mm -hmm. Very good. Niall Murphy, if I could just ask you to um, maybe give your opinion on the question that I asked to Kieran Harahal. And the question was, what needs to happen to ensure the citizens in the South will vote yes uh, if and when you know that opportunity arises? Now, I appreciate, Niall, you're a Belfast man, so um, I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of anyone living in the South, but I, I suppose you know, you're know you a, a man that's travelled, well-travelled all over the world. And I guess, what's your sense of, of what... Um, their 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 ideas would be. Uh, well, I I think I think Kieran's quite right on it. I just want to publicly say I really enjoyed Kieran's uh, article on on the on the shared shared Ireland website um, that postulated October twenty twenty eight on the steps of Waterford uh, City Hall. Uh, for that uh, and I would encourage anyone to go and read that Re really really enjoyable piece of writing but in terms of um, how, how southern society uh, might reflect upon things uh, and, and Kieran does touch on it in his article and mentioned it in his, in his remarks there, there there is a gift 
that I think the new nation, as it would be, can present to itself that would um, really enhance the best opportunities of everybody living in the island. And it is um, a, a national all-island healthcare system uh, free at the point of access from cradle to grave. Uh, and it would be different to the healthcare system which currently operates on either side of the island. Um, and, and in that regard, I think it's, you know, there, there's a perhaps a, a, a nuanced, I want to say, difficult conversation to be had uh, with regards to um, the provision of service that we presently enjoy in the north. Um, and it's a fantasy. Uh, the, the NHS has been mythologized by the Tory governments, which have successively uh, attempted to ruin it. They perpetuate the myth that the NHS is free because it suits their ideology. Um, it has never been free. Uh, palliative care, for example, is provided by hospices um, in private and with regards to access um, to all services. Uh, I, I was quite sick last year and, you know, had my life saved by nurses and doctors and consultants employed in the NHS, um, but haven't got to know quite a few of them as lifelong friends as a result. Uh, they're quite agitated at this uh, mythology of the NHS, uh, which is being used in this debate. Um, one consultant remarked to me that there's no point having free ice cream and your first ice cream. Mm -hmm. um, a GP referral to hospital for cataract surgery uh, in the north now is 252 weeks. So that's over five years. Mm -hmm. So it's not free. No. Um, and and, and there, there are problems with it. People talk about free prescriptions, but most of the population in the north aren't in receipt of, uh, of free prescriptions. And for those that are, um, medicine is, is, is actually quite cheap. Outcomes in the south are more enhanced in terms of life expectancy. We looked at, um, uh, published in July last summer um, by Professor Seamus McGuinness. And he, he empirically, evidentially, that uh, today in the, in the South uh, will live for a year and a half longer than somebody born in the North. Niall, sorry, would you mind just repeating that last bit about um, the age expectancy? Because you just cut out there for a little bit. Apologies. Uh, yes, the the age, or sorry, the, the a person born today in the south will live for eighteen months longer. Okay. Um, than somebody born in the north. Um, somebody aged sixty five today will live on average six months longer than somebody born uh, in the north. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there 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 are outcomes. Um, you know, ICU beds per one hundred thousand. In the north, and there's really four NHSs that would be spoken of in the British context. The NHS in in the north is different to that in Wales. It's different again to that in Scotland. Um, but in terms of NHS or ICU beds, um, in Germany, 
in Scandinavia, there are 20 per 100,000. In the south, there are 10. Uh, the NHS, on average, has, has two ICU survival rates. Uh, 82%, Germany's 90%. The median survival rate is 72%. The NHS is 586 Mm -hmm. So the and there needs to be a brand new imagination. And when I think of nurses, I think of um, you know driving to work, passing, and they're um, and looking at nurses striking, not for a pay raise, for pay parity, mm -hmm. um, for safe staffing levels, so that they can curb days pension entitlements a day's wage to have the right to look after um, their patients in a safe circumstance so Tory mm -hmm. government about the NHS really needs to be critically assessed and reviewed for what might be best for everybody on this island okay Niall um, apologies to anybody that's listening to this um, I don't know if it's maybe my connection here, but you did cut out a no time here, but behind the scenes we'll try and edit it and, and put it, patch it together. Folks, we are 53 minutes in here and um, I honestly feel as if that we, we haven't really even started the conversation yet. But listen, nobody's looking a border poll um, tomorrow or next week, so we'll have many some more of a conversation. So we, if you don't mind, um, we have about seven minutes left, I believe. And I would just, Niall, you picked up there on um, the health and, and that's vital. And I think Professor Collin and, and other contributors said, you know, that, you know, is anything free at the point of entry? And, you know, there's no point just replicating an already broken system in any new um, dispensation. What about our youth? You know, um, the voting age in, in any future referendum uh, is currently at 18. Um, you know, it's we we we. There's an argument that, that people should be voting at 16. Uh, let me see who who's looking at me. Um, Kieran Harhill, would you like to take that one on briefly? Yeah, so I know it's, I think in Wales and Scotland, I think there are votes at 16. So it is, and I suppose when you look at the Scottish independence referendum, it often came up, this is a once in a generation vote probably the same arguments would be made from the unionist perspective that once this vote happens, if it's a vote to remain in the union, you're going to have to wait another generation. So if you're a 16 year old and uh, I suppose just thinking about Dr. Stephen Farry, for example, deputy leader of the Alliance Party, he mentioned how the Alliance Party look forward and aspire to Northern Ireland rejoin the European Union. Uh, if it's the case that 16-year-olds will vote and they're more pro-European, I think that European angle of a referendum will be absolutely crucial in terms of people who might have been unionists um, uh, who support European Union, but because of Brexit, because their right to stay in the EU has been taken away from them because of England, I think that'll be a major driver for people to look towards Irish unity and see this is our route back to the EU. And I'm sure for young people who want to benefit from Erasmus and other aspects the European Union provides, I think... Uh, that'll be a major driver. So I think votes at 16, I think it should be looked into definitely. And uh, I suppose an aspect maybe for the Citizens' Assembly to look into as well. 
Um, Emma Rainey, what's your opinion on that or anything else for that matter that we've discussed? I completely agree with Karen. Um, 1.3 million people have been, I mean, young people have been born in this island since 1998. You know, by the time a border bowl comes around, many of them will be hitting like 16 to 18. So I completely agree that the the folk needs should be lowered. I remember even feeling like as a 16, reflecting on my own experience as a 16 year old, I felt like I was more politically aware than most of the adults around me. And, you know, our young people are also going to be the ones that live with the outcome of a referendum the longest. They should be absolutely central in regards to the debate and the planning process as well. And yeah. Lovely, no problem at all. Thank you for Emma. Sean, Think32, what's your opinion on um, voting age? Sorry, Sean, you're on mute. Uh, you're on mute. That's, uh, that's better. Sorry, that's just uh, 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 that's just 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 for uh, something that the Citizens' Assembly to, to take up. There's a Citizens' Assembly uh, sorted out. Like, uh, like, uh, in Scotland, the way you think it is, at the age of 16, and I, I don't see why it could be here. Yeah, very good. And um, Professor Kong, what's your thoughts and opinions on voting aid? Just, just to, like with much else, Scotland is showing the way. Um, I think it's absolutely vital here in the north in particular that this is going to have a monumental impact on everyone who lives here. And I think it's essential that we make the case for an inclusive franchise in the north. And particularly, you know, for people who will, you know, live a long time in in the new arrangements. And you know, it's absolutely vital that, you know, votes at 16 comes part of this conversation as well. We want as many people given a say as possible, in my view. And I think the way Scotland have been leading this debate is, is, is remarkable, as in other areas like quality and human rights as well. So. Lovely. And just, we have a couple of minutes left here. Niall Murphy, any thoughts and opinions on voting age? Oh, just uh, I agree. I think there's widespread um, agreement that 16 is the appropriate age. These are the citizens that are going to have to live with the new constitutional arrangement for the longest. And it's only but appropriate that uh, they have a say in it. You know, um, the, the state permits a wide range of activities from the age of 16. Um, and voting is the most appropriate that should be expressed. And uh, they will have to live with the consequences. So I agree with, with everybody's analysis there. And last word to yourself, Emma D'Souza. Same question, but Emma, I'm going to um, just be a little bit awkward here. Um, I'm assuming you agree, but you can tell me that yourself in two minutes. Um, but what now has to be done, Emma? How can we get this enshrined in law? You know, this is a conversation. We can all have conversations. But what needs to actually physically happen for this to become a reality? Uh, well, first off, yes, I do agree on uh, lowering the voting age. Um, and also on having a conversation around um, having an inclusive, broad franchise. And that involves also looking at citizens abroad, whether or not they would be entitled to vote. And also having a conversation around those who are permanently resident on the island of Ireland and in Northern Ireland, would they be entitled to vote? Should they be entitled to vote? I believe they should be. 
you know, people like my husband, Jake, who's an American citizen who fought the law and won for the Good Friday Agreement has no right to vote um, and no political representation here, but he can vote, you know, back in the U.S. So I think there is a conversation to be had over the franchise. Um, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of EU citizens and others who live in Northern Ireland down in the South who I think should make a case for being involved in this conversation. It's their lives too. Um, and in terms of what needs to be done now, you know, the conversation as we've all seen is becoming mainstreamed. We are seeing, you know, white papers and plans coming out from all major political parties now in uh, the South. And I think that tells us that we're on the trajectory of substantial change and really the responsibility we have now is being prepared for that change. And what we can do to, to make that happen, I mean, just continue doing what we're already doing in terms of having these open conversations and putting pressure on our political representatives to come to the table and, you know, reflect on the fact that they have a responsibility as political representatives to, to be prepared for when the people are ready to make real the concept of self-determination, because I believe that time is coming and we need to have all uh, issues in terms of the nitty gritty around how is it going to work around education? You know, I mean, we're talking about integrated education a lot in the north at the minute, but what about merging the education systems north and south? That in itself is a huge conversation that needs to be had. Healthcare was talked about a lot in this episode, that in itself is a huge topic and housing, as Kieran has raised, is a significant problem for those in the South. So we have a whole rake of stuff here that needs to be discussed and needs to be worked out and it's going to require a lot of work. There's plenty of minds working at it. Emma, thank you very much. And listen, can I thank each and every one of you folks for giving up an hour of your time. It was a fantastic conversation and it's something that I hope we can do moving forward in the future. So. A big thanks to the Pro Unity group here in front of us today. Remember, folks, don't be afraid to join this conversation. It costs uh, nothing. It's your future, and um, you might as well have your opinion on it. Thank you very much, one and all, and speak to you all again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.